Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisson. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisson. Hi, everybody. This is Christian Cisson coming to you. Uh, I guess it's not necessarily uh, from the kill room since uh, we're still uh, on a somewhat remote schedule, but uh, the virtual kill room that is uh, my home office. And today's guest for the third Friday's podcast uh, will probably spike an increase in viewership, uh, mostly because last month's episode uh, was solo. but in part due to the fact that uh, my guest uh, does have a very, very uh, expansive knowledge of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, So my guest, without further ado, is uh, Christopher Major. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's been been at least a few months and uh, I'm back at my insistence. (laughs) Right. Right. How how has um, your... uh, your work been impacted by working remotely versus uh, coming into the office just uh, so that uh, our viewers can can uh, get an inside look yeah so uh, it's the, the greatest thing about this is it's prompting uh, civil courts across the world to you know move into the 21st century uh, <laughs> you know uh, New York New York workers comp board has had virtual hearings for a couple of years now um, but they're finally letting, uh, and this is happening in New Jersey comp cases too, finally letting you call in or do virtual appearances. Uh, and it's been my opinion for years now that there's zero reason, unless it's a jury trial, why you have to physically be present in the court. So, you know, but the bad thing is I don't get to see everyone's smiling faces and uh, it's very easy to uh, feel isolated. So, <clears throat> Yeah, you know, I think uh, we're all dealing with that, but I think... Um... We, uh, you know, I think your answer there's kind of kind of a good example of how we're we're soldiering on and we're making sure that uh, everything is uh, as perfect as uh, can be. Um, now, I know you do uh, the Major Mondays webinar uh, every month, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, just to to let our viewership know, uh, you know, Chris. Um, uh, runs, uh, so to speak, our civil team here at Lois Law Firm. And it's a nice way to introduce our topic for today, uh, which is the health insurance matching program. Now, we do need to discuss it in diff- on different kinds of fronts, right? Uh, after we, we detail what exactly it is and what does that mean for the New York workers' compensation carrier and, and what are we doing uh, to, to make sure that uh, our clients' interests are being defended and served. So let's start there. You know, what is the health insurance matching program? So uh, the basic way to think about this is it's just the procedure by which a private health insurer, well, not necessarily private, but by which the claimant's health insurer can uh, seek reimbursement from the comp carrier for treatment uh, that is arguably supposed to be covered by a worker's compensation claim. And, and uh, is this is this program 
you know, codified in the workers' compensation law or the, the, the regulations or both? Uh, so it's both. We have uh, sections 13D and 13H of the workers' comp law are what give rise uh, to the health insurance matching program. Uh, and then the, uh, let's just call it hemp going forward for brevity's sake, uh, the hemp rules and regulations are codified in uh, 12 NYCRR 325.5 and 325.6. And that's where, uh, as you know, most of our workers' compensation regulations live is in uh, Title 12 of the New York Code's rules and regulations. And you might be asking yourself, um, why is this called the matching program when it's pretty much just a demand for reimbursement? Uh, well, the process is that these health insurers collect data uh, regarding this injury, and so does the board. And the health insurers submit the data to the board and say, does this match uh, a claim that you have going right now? And if they get what's called a full match, uh, they get all of the information in the board file, uh, and then they're permitted to serve the HIMP-1 request. But uh, you know, Christian, one of the things you and I were talking about, why this is a topic that we're, we're addressing specifically, is it's this weird sort of situation where you can close down a case on a full and final Section 32 settlement, and then all of a sudden get hit across the face with, with $100,000 in a HIMP-1 claim. You know, it's these claims that are just lurking without a set statute of limitations, because they have three years from the date of payment for services to, to get the match from the board or file the request with the board. Uh, and then they have a year from four different dates to actually serve the demand. And so you could think this workers' comp claim is dead, done, dusted, and over with. Uh, and then all of a sudden, here's 100K in, in med exposure that you never saw coming. <clears throat> and and to, to add to that, uh, you know, not even seeing it coming... Um, you know, sometimes we apply that to, you know, how should we say it? I guess, uh, you know, issue spotting or things we want to be proactive about before they become a problem. And what you're telling me here is that there may not even be the possibility to be proactive or to see this coming because the claimant would be uh, seeking treatment from a provider who is not billing the workers' compensation carrier. So unless those records magically make its way uh, to the board file, uh, maybe by, by virtue of the attorney or uh, the claimant, him or herself, uh, I mean, am I, am I entirely off base here? Uh, it seems like the carrier really can't do anything until the hemp one is really filed, unless they get lucky in those uh, exceptions I, I, I outlined. And uh, what a beautiful setup that is for uh, the later discussion about what we can do to minimize exposure in these cases. So yes, you're, you're correct in that it, it almost seems like this appears out of the blue and it's something that blindsides you and catches you off guard. But a good defense attorney will recognize the warning signs and the red flags that give rise to a hemp claim. Perfect example. MG2 filed, right? Carrier denies it, or the board says it's defective because it has the wrong fax number. Provider fi files it again, uh, and it's also denied. Same treatment, still denied. Uh, they file a request for review with the board. You know, they file the MG2R. Board says insufficient evidence of causal relationship in a proposed decision, denies it. 
you can rest assured that this provider and this claimant that are insistent on doing this treatment are just going to bill it to the health insurer. That's what's going to happen many, many times, even though they know, the providers know they're not supposed to do that. In fact, it's illegal to do that, to bill to the private health insurer when they're aware that there's a workers' comp claim. But that's warning sign number one. Warning sign number two, uh, you can get from a great IME. So you know how uh, one of our perfect IMEs would get a detailed history from the claimant, and that, that would include a discussion of uh, prior injuries and treatment, right? Well, if we see in there that, let's say, you have a diabetic exacerbation case, right? And it gets established, gets established for, the, for the toe, but not for the foot. Uh, you know, it gets established for the great toe, and then there's peripheral vascular disease and, and poorly controlled diabetes. And ultimately, the foot gets amputated. You get an IME down the road, uh, and causal relationship hasn't been found for the foot, but it mentions a foot amputation following the stubbing of this toe. Well, there's probably a hundred to $300,000 amputation surgery in there somewhere that you can bet uh, a health insurer is just not going to let go. So there's a tendency to throw your hands up and go, where is this coming from? I didn't see this coming, but that's not what we do here. Uh, and we'll get into that uh, at the, at the, towards the end of the podcast, but uh, a competent defense attorney will see this coming. And it's all just all about diligence and knowing what to expect. I think uh, I think our viewers can can see that segue appearing right before their eyes that we are the competent defense attorneys to do that. And certainly uh, I wouldn't believe otherwise. Uh, but I think uh, to to kind of, I guess, tie it all together. Right. When you're referring to the health insurer, you're you're uh, you're referring to the, the a private company separate from the workers compensation carrier. And uh, sometimes when you have that situation that you outlined with a variance request and having it uh, denied, sometimes we see it in the form of a claimant's attorney requesting litigation over that denial uh, or maybe an appeal uh, to the board panel uh, in response to that denial. But what you're discussing is you know, almost um, something outside the jurisdiction of the board uh, where you know, claimant and doctor seem to have their uh, meet their needs met, right? The claimant receives the treatment that even though it's it's not within the guidelines, claimant receives it, and the provider gets paid by someone. You may even think that if they're outside workers' compensation and they bill a private health insurer, they may be getting more money from the health insurer who may not be uh, very knowledgeable about the New York fee schedule. Do you think that uh, would play a role? Yeah, for sure. And and while we're talking about, you know, alarm bells for illegal things going on, uh, to bill a private health insurer simply to avoid the New York fee schedule is uh, essentially per se removal of certification um, by, from the Workers' Compensation Board to treat claimants uh, you can wave bye-bye to that. Uh, the medical license itself may actually be at stake. Uh, there are potential penalties. Uh, they're not supposed to do this. Um, but, you know, in, in all fairness, right, we have Section 13A of the Workers' Comp Law uh, that 
details, it is the carrier's responsibility to pay for medical treatment for work-related injury. Um, but that being said, our responsibility for payment of a work-related injury is limited to that payment we're responsible for making under the workers' comp law and under the regs. And so uh, what I think is a nice, uh, we're, we're the masters of segue here on the Third Friday podcast. What I think is um, a nice little lead in to the next part of this discussion is what are our permissible objections under the hemp rules and regulations? Because there's a pretty good overlap with some of the defenses you would have in a workers' compensation claim. Yeah, so uh, why, don't we, why don't we discuss them? And I guess for everybody listening, uh, there, there's going to be some legalese, right? We're going to do our best to kind of uh, wade through uh, because it's, it's understandable uh, that it can kind of uh, cloud uh, the, the topic or, or the message here. But, uh, Chris, let's, let's talk about how we would object uh, to these uh, HIMP-1 requests uh, and uh, save the workers' compensation carrier from back-end exposure. Right. So, uh, as we mentioned sort of at the outset, um, this is a type of claim that doesn't really have a set statute of limitations. And as the lowest attorney that dabbles in, uh, well, not dabbles, but does uh, primarily civil practice, uh, obviously this drives me nuts. Um, I don't like the fact that there's this potential exposure looming on the horizon. Now, uh, fortunately, a Section 32 is actually one of the objections. We'll get into that in a moment. Um, but I really don't like the fact that uh, these health insurers can dither and, and equivocate and just sort of sit on the fence, take their time, and then uh, get a match, and they get a year from that date. So. The first thing we look at is the time limitation criteria. So it has to be filed, the request for reimbursement, remember that uh, data we said earlier that they submit to the board for a match. That has to be filed with the board within three years of the date of payment for services. So not the date of treatment, treatment, but the date of actual payment for the services at issue. So they need to have gotten a full match or have filed the request within three years of the date of payment for services. Then there are four operative dates for serving the actual hemp one form itself. So step one's the match, step two is service. The four operative dates are uh, one year from the latest of acceptance of the claim or establishment of ANCR to the body part in question. Uh, ANCR for uh, I'm sure all of our educated viewers, accident notice and causal relationship, basically the board's establishment of the claim. Um, the date the board notifies the health insurer of a full match. So from the date of the match, they have, they have a year to serve it. The date of payment for services or the effective date of the hemp rules and regulations. Practically, that one you don't have to worry about anymore because they became effective on June 1st, 2017. So you're never going to see that. But the first thing we always do uh, is look out for timeliness. And we have to keep in mind um, on that topic of timeliness that we have 90 days from the date of service of the hemp one, which the health insurer will put on the form itself, it says date served. We have 90 days to file our objection or else we lose those defenses for arbitration. Yeah, so I think, you know, starting off there, right, uh, is, is a good uh, uh, idea because when we can use procedural 
defenses in, in really any uh, type of uh, situation. They're typically uh, stronger than, you know, let's say credibility defenses because we cannot actually get to the point of uh, having to argue about which doctor is more credible about this procedure, right? Uh, we're talking about timeliness in a sense of a black and white world. So from the, the first set of, of paying for the treatment to get the match and then the second set of uh, limitations uh, based on time, which is you know establishment or acceptance of the claim or mm-hmm. notification of the match or the date of payment, uh, we definitely go there first. Uh, now, right. let's say that uh, uh, we don't find a defense there. Uh, what would what would we look for next? So we'll go down sort of um, the funnel of uh, most strong defenses to, to least strong. Uh, I think that's probably the best way to go about this because you have to you have to keep in mind here is you're not um, you're not dealing with the board. The board's involvement sort of ends after they confirm that there's a match. So you're not dealing with the board. Uh, you're not dealing with a law judge, which, I mean, probably a good thing. <laughs> um, but you are, you, are dealing with, uh, you are dealing with an arbitrator. Um, and you, what you have to realize is that, as with every type of arbitration, it is subject to the individual whims and opinions and findings of this person. Uh, and New York heavily favors arbitration. Uh, so it's got to be blatantly wrong uh, if you're going to get any relief from the Supreme Court. Uh, and I say the Supreme Court of any of the counties and you know that might be applicable um, under Article 75 of the CPLR. But um, this is why when you have a timeliness defense uh, or some of these defenses we're about to get into, um, it's a beautiful thing because this, this arbitrator nine times out of 10 is looking for an excuse to say, I don't even have to read this. Um, so number one, uh, ANCR or establishment of the claim, or ANCR or acceptance of the claim. This only makes sense, right? If there's a denied workers compensation case, why, if we're not liable for treatment in that case, why would we be liable for treatment that a health insurer paid for in connection with that same accident. So ANCR or acceptance are your thresholds to compensability under the HIMP rules and regulations. And uh, what's so great about it is uh, it actually, it doesn't just say that this is a permissible objection. Uh, the claim is ineligible for arbitration unless there is one either acceptance or ANCR. So this is your bar to them even getting into the door. Obviously that's one of your strongest. Uh, timely service we talked about um this is one that's going to apply in every instance uh, and i'm putting it sort of at the top of the strength of our defenses even though uh even though you know it arguably it says we have exposure the fee schedule which we mentioned earlier uh the carrier's liability for payment is limited to the fee schedule and the fee schedule is an objection uh that's available under the guidelines so what we have to keep in mind when we're weighing whether to settle, take it to arbitration, etc., cetera, um, the fee schedule is our worst case scenario, right? That's, that's where the arbitrator looks at everything and says, you're liable for payment under this. Um, but guess what? The hemp rules and regulations say we're responsible to reimburse them for what they paid 
except for the fee schedule. If it's within the fee schedule, we're only re responsible for paying that. So uh, I think that that's an important objection to sort of put at the top of our list of uh, strong defenses. Okay, so I guess if, if we can't make those defenses, you know, what are some of the, you know, alternative, I, I know you mentioned they'd be a little bit weaker and I, I would likely agree, uh, but let's say that, uh, you know, the, the, the private health insurer has timely complied uh, for an accepted or established claim. Uh, how else uh, can we object to uh, this type of reimbursement request? So the threshold for serving it under the hemp rules and regulations is just that it's established. Uh, so you can have a case that involves the leg and the arm. If it's established for the leg, but the arm is denied, they can still serve the request, uh, but the arm may not be established. And heck, maybe even we dispute causal relationship in the comp claim, we get a good IME, uh, we set it down for depths and, and we win and the arm is disallowed. The health insurer can still serve that hemp one because the case was established, albeit for the leg. Uh, but if they're demanding reimbursement for the treatment to the arm, well, one of our favorite workers' comp arguments, part of ANCR, one of the biggest components, causal relationship. Uh, the treatment for which they are seeking reimbursement has to be causally related to the accident. Now, the reason I'm not putting this at the top of the strength of our defenses uh, is an arbitrator, again, is going to be looking at the threshold of was this established? Was this timely? Uh, and if it's something that's sort of within the realm of possibility, going back to that um, diabetic exacerbation case, right? Maybe the case never gets established from, for the foot, but the arbitrator may very legitimately say, well, wait a minute, this foot doesn't get amputated if it wasn't for the comp injury to the toe. So you can have these sort of disparate findings between the workers' comp board and the arbitrator. Um, so causal relationship is a very strong argument, but uh, not one of my top three, so to speak. Uh, another strong argument, denial of the treatment. Um, now, this doesn't apply if it was rendered on an emergency basis, but if, um, if the treatment was, if approval for the treatment was sought, you're talking about your C4 auth or your MG2, and it was denied by the carrier, uh, and the provider either doesn't request review of that denial uh, or you know, doesn't pursue an appeal of the denial uh, and the board upholds it or the board doesn't say anything at all, um, that is a very, very valid basis to deny these. Uh, there's a, some nuance here we'll get, into, we'll get into in a second, but I'm just gonna sort of blitz through the, the remaining objections here. Bill should have been prorated with another physician or health provider. Uh, Self-explanatory, uh, you know, you're getting you're getting dinged for the full value of the bill um, when it should it's actually split among multiple providers. Um, carrier can't determine from the documentation served whether it is responsible for payment. Uh, so this one boils down to the Hemp Rules and Regulations 325.6.3c. It details all the information that the health insurer is required to provide. Um, Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, they will have this information if they actually got a full match from the board uh, and if their claim is actually legitimate. They are required to provide the CPT and DRG codes. Uh, they are required to provide the amounts billed by the health insurer 
Interestingly, they're not required to provide the actual health insurance claim forms themselves. They're not required to provide the board forms like the C4, C4.2, C4 AMR. They're not required to provide any of that, but they're required to provide sufficient documentation to show that amounts were billed, uh, amounts were paid. Um, now, beyond that, uh, we have previously reimbursed the health insurer uh, or provider. Another self-explanatory one, we paid for this treatment, you don't have it in your records, we're not liable for it twice. Uh, treatment comes after a full and final 32. Again, self-explanatory, we just got rid of liability. Why would we pay for anything that comes after a 32? To be clear, uh, that is treatment that occurs after the 32. And um, prior to the Section 32 settlement, if it's treatment before that, you know, the carrier remains liable for the cost of causally related medical treatment up until the day 32 is approved by the board. So um, that one is a little wishy-washy, but anything after Section 32 gets approved, uh, no go. Then we have um, one of my favorites. I'm sure this will bring a smile to your face, Christian. Uh, applicability of a Section 29 credit. This is actually, this is actually uh, a permissible objection under the hemp rules and regulations, and I love it uh, because you get to you get to pop in on a third-party action case docket, NYSEF, eCourts. Uh, if it looks like that case settled, you get to do a little bit of legwork. And if you're applying a Burns credit uh, or a full holiday from payments during the time this treatment occurs, great. You're not liable for payment. Uh, or even if, um, even if the treatment occurred previously, but you haven't extinguished the credit yet, you're entitled to an offset against medical treatment. Uh, so Section 29 credit is another one. And then we get into the complicated, nuanced one, right? There's there's 11 total objections uh, provided under the regulations. Um, sub, subsection C of section 325-6.4 says you can object to anything else um, provided it's not specifically barred by the hemp rules and regulations. Objection number 11, uh, the dirty underbelly objection that unless you got uh, a competent workers comp well, before defense. you even before you continue the dirty underbelly i feel like that's you know we got to give it a pause <laughs> before <laughs> before we get there maybe some people might be getting excited uh so uh let's 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 hear it <laughs> yeah so the medical treatment guidelines treatment inconsistent oh, with the with the mtgs and why is this why did i call this the sort of dirty underbelly of objections well not a ton of uh, defense attorneys know the guidelines uh, inside out like uh, Mr. Cson and the other lowest attorneys do. Um, so this requires a working understanding of the guidelines. Uh, for instance, what is the standard for a repeat diagnostic procedure, right? Some kind of worsening in pathology or it's appropriate as a follow-up after surgery, something of that nature. But if you see in a prior MRI, it's sufficient to give a diagnosis. And then there's another MRI a year later. Absolutely nothing's changed. And the health insurer wants reimbursement for that MRI. Well, that's an objection. Uh, chiropractic treatment exceeding uh, the 10 visits provided for, uh, physical therapy in excess of what is provided for. What is the standard for uh, lumbar epidural injections? Uh, so there has to be some sort of documented benefit on an ongoing basis. And so if there's a medical report that says, Claimant didn't really experience any relief from the lumbar injections, but 
Uh, they'll be back next month for another one. Well, that's an objection that you can raise under the uh, HIMP rules and regulations. And so this is where it really starts to get murky because you're analyzing, and a lot of times these health insurers are not giving you the medical records because they, number one, they just want you to pay. And number two, they don't have to. So you, what you're getting is CPT, DRG, ICD-10 codes, the amount that they actually pay and what the treatment allegedly is. And so it involves diving into the comp file and saying, okay, well, this report wasn't filed with the board. Allegedly, there's treatment on that date. What happened before it? What happened after it? Does this treatment appear to be supported by the findings of the claimants treating providers in the board file? And this is where you can truly weaponize a knowledge of the workers' comp law. Okay, so uh, you know, I think we we got to that end where uh, again it, it kind of goes down the line, right? With procedural defenses, and then uh, you know your your lawyering and your skills uh, with, with respect to the case kind of come in. Now, let's say Chris, we 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 have a permissible objection, we make it. Uh, you did mention that there was an arbitrator involved. So what exactly happens after the objection is filed, uh, hopefully by our office? Right. Um, so I would be remiss uh, if just as a, as a tangent to the, uh, to the medical treatment guidelines objection, I didn't mention one of those objections that's specifically prohibited by the, by the hemp rules and regulations. But as with everything, there's nuance to it. So the board says um, failure of a provider, or the hemp rules and regulations say, failure of a provider to seek prior authorization for treatment under section 13A5 of the workers' comp law uh, is not a valid objection. And you go, oh, well, all right, failure to file a C4 auth. Guess I can't object on that basis. Well, not so. Uh, And again, this is where it requires a working knowledge of both the hemp rules and regulations and the medical treatment guidelines. Section 13A5 is the section that applies to special services costing in excess of $1,000. So what the, what the hemp rules and regulations are seeking to avoid is an objection just based on the fact that the treatment was too expensive and they didn't ask first. But again, we can object based on the MTGs uh, and we have uh, specifically delineated procedures under the medical treatment guidelines that always require prior authorization, right? And those are, um, those are your lumbar fusions, uh, your arthroplasties, um, any of those sort of uh, any of those sort of listed procedures on the bottom of the C4 auth, you can still object based on a failure to get prior authorization under those. So I did just want to touch on that. Don't ever let a health insurer tell you you can't object based on failure to file a C4 auth. They're right if it's based on the fact that the failure to file the C4 auth was you know treatment in excess of one thousand dollars. They're wrong if the failure to file a C4 auth was addressing treatment that specifically required prior authorization. Um, Now, in response to your uh, inquiry of what follows the objection, uh, we're working with 90-day periods over and over. The health insurer then has 90 days from the date our objection is served to request uh, arbitration. What happens after that, uh, we have 14 days from the date that they request the arbitration uh, to demand an oral hearing. Uh, and the reason I bring up that timeline, you know, I'm not going to get bogged down too much in the specifics of timing, 
I just bring up that one because I don't, it's going to cost you $475. The good news is you get some of that back if you win in the arbitration. Uh, but I don't understand in any world why uh, an aggressive and determined attorney wouldn't recommend incurring the cost and going to an oral hearing, right? If, if, you, if you had the chance to dispute something, would you, rather be, uh, would you rather be submitting a summation to the judge or being able to hammer out your arguments and, and knock down everything your adversary is saying in real time at a hearing? You know, just yeah, that's a good point. Experience. I mean, how, what else would you what else would you want to do as, as an attorney? Right. I mean, uh, surely there are plenty of people who are, are licensed uh, by state bars across the country that uh, do not litigate. But uh, it would it would kind of uh, puzzle me as to if someone I guess really if you wanted to be a, a lawyer, like, you know, a real hardened lawyer, um, I don't know uh, why you wouldn't want uh, to simply request an oral hearing other than, you know, uh, the, the time and expense and, and cost of doing so. But uh, to put it, you know, uh, more matter of fact, if we are cognizant of our defense effort on the workers' compensation claim already, there's not much more of an excess investment of time and money into that file uh, when we are already defending the workers' compensation claim. And we, uh, we also talked about this on a prior uh, Third Friday podcast uh, in reference to uh, subrogated claims, right? Where we're, where we're uh, potentially pursuing a lien or reimbursement uh, or filing the complaint ourselves. Uh, well, who is more familiar with the medical treatment, the damages, the timing of everything than the comp defense attorney? Uh, and, you know, I, I just bring up um, a cautionary uh, statement that our own Greg Lois provided, which is to uh, avoid falling into the habit of being essentially uh, an, you know, an adjuster with a law license, where you're just you're recommending settlement left and right when there's a litigated issue to be had. Um, but just with regard to the arbitration process, uh, you know, we always recommend the oral hearing. Otherwise, the default is on the papers. Um, they do. The arbitrator then has to issue a written decision. They either have to deny it or say exactly how much is owed. Uh, anything other than that is uh, is objectionable. They they have two options: no reimbursement or reimbursement in the amount of X. Uh, not yes reimbursement. That's not a permissible decision. Um, you are allowed to request reconsideration. Does it ever go anywhere? Usually not, because it's by the same person that just resolved it against you. And so when you go beyond that, it takes you to the appeals process uh, for arbitration claims under CPLR Article 75. And now you're looking for relief from the Supreme Court and it starts to get a little bit messier. Again, New York public policy heavily favors arbitration. So they're gonna try and uphold the finality of this award left and right. But uh, I love what you said about um, Who's in a better position to litigate and demand that oral hearing and defend on all fronts uh, than your comp attorney, right? Because you're harmonizing efforts. Uh, and again, we talked about this in the 29 and loss transfer aspect. Uh, and you're synchronizing your defenses. 
You're never going to accept liability for a body part that you know there could be back-end exposure for on a HIMP-1 claim. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and certainly, um, you may even argue that a defense firm that has to do it outside of the comp claim is actually going to spend more time trying to defend that particular action uh, without having the access and working knowledge of what's going on uh, with the workers' compensation file. So, you know, Chris, you and I talk a lot about um, our clients having a bottom line, right? It's not just indemnity and medical within the workers' compensation claim. Uh, you know, factoring in loss transfer, factoring in uh, Section 29 reimbursement. Um, these are things that 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 really matter. Uh, and we, we can make a difference uh, even when no one's paying attention, right? Usually, uh, the wins that we speak of somehow have some kind of notice to the claimant's attorney, right? And the claimant's attorney is probably, uh, you know, maybe enemy is the wrong word, but certainly our most um, intelligible adversary in this process uh, because they are fighting uh, for us on so many different issues. So they are incentivized to know about the file. And what you're, what you're detailing for us today is a system where if we just take the extra step uh, that we have been doing for our clients, we may be going up against uh, participants in this um, you know, industry, for lack of a better term, or really uh, having related uh, issues uh, with respect to the matching program that aren't our most uh, intelligent adversaries. And, and that is certainly something that uh, we, we want to uh, make clear. And, it, you know, if anything else, right, saving something on the bottom line requires or, or allows for more buckets or pools of uh, uh, money to, to maybe outline for Section 32, right, uh, if our case isn't settled, and allows us to play around with certain different scenarios and get creative. So um, I, I want to thank you for coming on uh, to today's show. I think that it's been helpful uh, to our listeners uh, and, you know, you know, I do call you uh, the Section 29 superhero, but I think uh, we can certainly uh, pass that across to to the matching program here today as well. Um, you know, tell me something. How how is uh how's that puppy doing? How's that new puppy doing? Uh, bladder control is an issue, <laughs> um, but, but let's, he, he's eager to please. He wants to do the right thing. Um, he's just excitable. You know, he came from a came from a rough situation, so uh, you know he's a little. He's overly emotional, but um, every day is a little bit better. Yeah, that's it's kind of a microcosm of life, right? You know, we're, we're starting out uh, with, with you know problems that we uh, need to get used to. We overcome them, and look at you. Uh, you know, COVID's not stopping you. Uh, glad to hear that everything's doing well on your end. Uh, so for Christopher Major, my name is Christian Cisan, reminding you to defend from day one.